0: This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. We're going to carry on today, well sort of finishing off actually, our Knowing Jesus uh, series. And today looking at what um, Hebrews 10.21 describes as the house of God. And that, that's a description for the church. And I, if, you're not a, if you're not a Christian here today, um, you are so, so welcome if you're just coming along, checking out faith, checking out church. You're super welcome. And hopefully today we'll unpack a little bit of, of what the church is. If you are a Christian here today, particularly I think if you've been in church for a while or you were kind of um, sort of get that church is important, perhaps not so much like the why, or to be honest, of your battery has got a little bit drained of juice, Debbie's word earlier on, church particularly, because it can be draining. Um, I feel like this, this afternoon hopefully will, will bring a level of uh, kind of revelation to you, but also warm your heart afresh about, about the house of God, about what it is and who we are and what an incredible, glorious privilege it is to be part of Uh, The people of God. Because truthfully, looking from the outside in, or even from the inside out sometimes, it can feel a little bit like, you know, you know, that experience if you're ever trying to look for a new place to live and you click through Right Move and you kind of see something which looks really miserable and boring, but the kind of headline is, you need to look inside because it looks much better on the inside than it is from the outside. Or if you've ever kind of been on those sort of websites which have those terrible clickbait adverts which say things like, an average-looking house contains amazing surprise, and then you click on it and it's like a swimming pool or something really boring and rubbish, and you think, why did I give them my click? But that kind of sense of actually something on the outside which looks at best properly average, actually on the inside is something really quite remarkable, and that's the house of God. That's the church. At first glance, the, ch- the house of God, the church, can often look pretty unremarkable. In the eyes of the world, it often very much looks insignificant, like maybe a relic from the past. Like, what? People still do that? Oh, wow. And it seems pretty ordinary often, even in our own eyes, as the people who, have been, who are in it. It's just a very regular gathering of very regular ordinary folk committed to a kind of largely invisible mission. And it's a bit sort of like, sometimes it feels a bit ordinary and a bit repetitive. It's like week after week, we do the same things with generally the same people. And sometimes in church life, it can feel a bit like we're taking a step forward, and then about three sideways, and maybe a shuffle, and a bit of a backward step, and then another step forward. And if, particularly for those of us who have been around for a long time, sometimes we can have that sense in which we feel that our kind of we haven't seen the fruit, if you like, that our worship and our work and our prayers and our hopes and our dreams have aspired to, kind of start out and think, "Oh, I'm going to see some," and you giving you, and he's like, "It's good, but I just don't feel like we've seen the fruit that I really dreamed of or desired." And then there's the people in church. Like stick around church long enough, and over the years, and someone is going to upset you, or worse, still hurt you you, I mean, I'm selling this, I hope, you you will end up frustrated. You will end up disappointed. We do this thing called DNA, which will be relaunched again real soon, which is our sort of joining the church kind of course. And and DNA part one, point one, is we're not perfect. And everyone's like, oh, wow, I love the fact you admit you're not perfect. That's really, we're not trying to present something that we're not. And then point one, point two is someone will upset you if you stay here long enough. Everyone's like, oh, oh, no, I really like the honesty. That's really great. Like, like this, What kind of church is this that just admits they're not brilliant and then says we're not perfect and says the outworking of this? Oh, I like that. And then it happens. Someone upsets you or someone hurts you. And the, the amount of people who act with just unbelievable disbelief that this could ever possibly happen in church. It's like DNA part 1.1.2. That's literally what I said. What are you confused about? No, but I didn't think it ever actually happened. And that's church. That's the reality. I was just reading this week an author who said, the people of God can be a real stumbling block to belief. Without us, the gospel would be easier to believe. (laughs) And I, I have a level of sympathy. We declare the forgiveness of God and then we don't forgive people. The generosity of God and then we're proper stingy. What a tip as well. I've paid for that. Oh, it's this God who is ever for us and lays down everything for us. Yeah, no, that's too much. You're asking me to serve on a team. How many times a a year? What, 12 times a year? A whole year? Nah, ain't doing it. Oh, that was awkward, didn't it? A bit close to the bone. Maybe we should just give up, eh? Like, give up on church. We'll just go home. What are we doing? Me and Jesus, that's all I need. But God doesn't really give us that option. And in fact, far from not just giving us that option, that's not the picture of the church at all that the Bible paints. The Bible tells this story of God who loves and calls for himself a people. In the Old Testament, he calls the nation of Israel, and from there, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Old Testament tells this story, and it's incredibly exciting. Has some mundane bits as well, but lots of it is quite exciting. And then Jesus comes, the pinnacle of the story, and he picks for himself 12 disciples. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out after Jesus ascends back to heaven, Pentecost, and the church is born, the people of God. And the Bible proclaims that the church is a radiant bride, a spiritual house of living stones, a pillar and a buttress of truth, the very body of Jesus Christ himself, his treasured possession. And it's God's desire for you and for me, for us, and our task that we see ourselves as God sees us. So you might be young and just dragged along here because mum and dad force me to come every week, and it's just easier to come and not argue. You might be like old, like I've heard this before. What new stuff is he possibly going to say on the church? And is this just a long winded way of getting us to serve more? You might be a, a newcomer into stuff. You might be a founding member here. You might be a front rower. You might be a Very back rower, hello, all the way back there. But this is our task, to see the church as God sees the church and then to embrace the privilege of being part of it. Ephesians chapter one in the New Testament in the Bible, right after this glorious description of what God has done for us, the spiritual blessings in Christ we now have as the chosen ones, Paul prays that the saints in the church in Ephesus and therefore us would understand Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked In this series, Knowing Jesus, and we're wrapping it up today because knowing Jesus involves knowing his people. That's the imagery right here. It tells us here, it tells us in other places in Scripture as well. We, the people of God, if you're a believer today, you are his body, Jesus' body, and he is the head. And therefore, we are united to him in every bit as real ways as my body is united to my head. They are not separate, they are not two things. This is not kind of. Take it apart. No, together. He is the head. We are the body. And his people, look at verse 23. It says, are the fullness of him. (laughs) Just allow that to freshly wash over you for a moment. Whatever problems the church has, whatever problems you may have with the church, must keep in mind that Jesus' people are his fullness. Without them, without us, he would be an incomplete person. Just allow that sitting in king again. Without us, his people are the fullness of him. Without us, he would be an incomplete person. And this, of course, requires significant faith to believe because of, frankly, how imperfect and obviously imperfect we are on earth. But here's the thing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so when we take seriously what God says about his church, it will shape our experience of belonging to it. When we take seriously what he says, that's the thing which shapes our experience of belonging to it. And the Bible uses all sorts of language to describe this relationship. It uses the language of husband, Jesus, and bride, the church. That's the closeness of the relationship. As a, as one of the early church fathers, um, Cyprian, who became the first African bishop to be martyred for his faith, he said, you cannot have God as your father if you will not have the church as your mother. It's like this close relationship going on. It's like you cannot claim to love Jesus, but not his bride. That just doesn't wash. It's like you can't say to me, I li- you're all right, James, I like you, but I don't like your wife. I mean, admittedly, it'd probably be the other way around, but that doesn't work for this illustration. It just doesn't wash. You can't say you're all right, but not your bride. I ain't not going to have that. So why on earth would Jesus be okay with that either? And I think it's worth at this point just noting that most of the terms that the Bible uses to describe the church are given to us by somebody who had a very, very complicated church story. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament and for whom describes the church in most different, lang- most different ways, he was someone who grew up as a religious kid, right? But rather than growing up with a love for the church, he seriously pushed back against it. He hated the church. He celebrated at the death of the first martyr. He used all of his energies to strike down Jesus' people wherever he could find them. And if you know the New Testament story of of Paul, he was on his way to persecute more when Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and, and the direction of his life changes forever. And overnight, the church's great enemy becomes the church's great friend. And you might expect the rest of Paul's story to be all kind of sunshine and singing hymns from that moment on. Like, everything's wonderful and glorious because he's now part of the church. Actually, it was pretty much anything but. New church member Paul went on to experience many challenges in the life of the local church. In Acts 9, we read that he was viewed with great skepticism by other church leaders. In 2 Corinthians 10, we, we see that he was suffered personal attacks from false teachers and their disciples. In 2: Peter three, we read that he was intentionally intentionally misunderstood and misrepresented by other Christians. Instead of choosing to believe the best, they intentionally chose to believe the worst about him. Acts 15, he has disagreements with other believers. He, in 2 Corinthians 11, he was disappointed, he says, with other Christians. he sits In Philippians, he sits alone in prison, wanting and desiring and longing for committed fellow gospel workers to reach out and help him. But then he realizes in Philippians two twenty one, he says they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's like, he was let down by people who instead of helping him, just chose their own interests first of all. And in a really particularly sad, like really sad verse, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. If anyone knew how disappointing the local church could be, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet... And yet, this is the same Paul who calls the church beloved at least a dozen times in his letters. He regularly refers to other Christians as brothers and sisters. He never hesitates, even in the most messy of situations like in Corinth. He never hesitates to redress and refer to Christians as saints. Even in that really sad verse I just read from 2 Timothy 4, the ending of that verse, it says, they all deserted me. But then he goes on, he says, but may it not be charged against them. Even in his darkest disappointments with the people of God, he chose to believe the best, to think the best, and to see the best and see the people of God as God sees them. You see, Paul knew that the church is more than it so often seems. He knew that the church is the people of God, the dwelling place of his spirit, the fullness of Christ. And the truth about the church shaped Paul's experience of the church. 1 John 4, 11. beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved. Over 30 times, New Testament writers address the church, us, as beloved. Jude says we were called, beloved, and kept. Paul in Colossians 3, uh, 12 says we are holy and Beloved. 1 Corinthians 15 and James, 3, uh, James 1 both address us as beloved brothers and sisters. Paul mentions Philemon as his beloved fellow worker. And even John, who looks forward to the end, to the, uh, how the church will be for all eternity in its perfect state, describes it as the beloved city in Revelation 20. Whatever else is true of us, and there are lots of things that are true of us, this is our deepest reality. We are beloved. We are the loved of God. And this is the foundational truth with which we embrace the privilege of belonging to the church. God loves his people. God loves his people. His heart, his affection, his delight is towards those who are his own. And this love didn't start when our church started. It didn't even start when the church started way back in Acts. God's love for his people is eternal. He says in scripture, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Ephesians 1, the bit we started with uh, a few moments ago, says before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, before any human was present to witness it. God set his love on his people. The triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, who himself, 1 John 4 tells us, is love. Out of his love, he determined to love others. It's also really quite important to remember that all the names used for God's people are names that can also be attributed to Jesus himself. We're the chosen ones. He is the chosen one. We were foreordained, chosen before the foundation of the world. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. He is the saint, the holy one above all. He is the beloved of the father. And Paul describes the church as the fullness of him. That's who we are. As the people who are created in Christ, redeemed by Christ, united with Christ and given to Christ, our identity in the church is inseparably connected to his. Our, let me say that again. Our identity in the church is inseparably connected to his. If Christ is the beloved, in him we're the beloved too. If he's the chosen one, in him we're the chosen ones too if he's the one who receives all glory because of him, guess where we're going to? And we now, the church then, are one of our jobs, our key role is to make visible the love of God, to display it to a watching world. Just look at the example of the early church. No sooner had Jesus returned to heaven than his people gathered as local churches. Just I want you to reconsider for a moment just the beautiful simplicity of, of a very familiar for many of us passage of scripture from the, from the book of Acts. Acts 2, 42. This is so familiar for many of us and yet profoundly, beautifully simple in what it actually is. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship Across the centuries, in different locations, the followers of Jesus have committed themselves to gathering where God has placed them for the purpose of worship and in mutual encouragement in communities, in families led by God-appointed leaders. Our life might be very simple. It's devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayers, but it testifies to a glorious reality. In the, it's in the ordinary, uh, in the ordinary local church, God makes His love for people visible. It's in the ordinary local church that God calls us out of the darkness of the pagan world to gather together before him. It's in the ordinary local church where he dwells by his spirit, promising to be present with us as we worship. It's in the church where the generosity of God is displayed as we meet one another's needs. It's in the church that he adds to our number daily, those who are being saved, continuing his faithfulness from one generation to another to another until he returns. And it's in the church that he speaks to us by his word as it is read and as it is preached. And it's in the church that he gives us what we call the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper communion as a visible sign, as a seal that we belong to him. There is no belonging to Jesus without belonging to his body. There's no belonging to Jesus without belonging to his body. Our identity in the church is inseparably inseparably connected to his. Because he's beloved, we're beloved. We are his treasured possession. Each one of us is precious to him, yet each one of us is different. Old time preacher, guy called Charlie Spurgeon, I'm sure he liked being called that. thing called, talking about God, what, God's jewels. He said from a loss, he was talking about, us as the people of God, from a lost stone on the beach, we become jewels in his crown. We once were lost stones on the beach, and now we're jewels in his crown. And so when we get together, when together we come as each kind of colored jewel, like emeralds and diamonds and rubies and sapphires, and I've run out of stones, I don't know anymore. But when gathered together, it's a reflection of the fullness of Jesus Each one of us has our own story. Each one of us is is different from the others and yet same because it's Jesus who has made us alive now. Each one of us has a different God story that reflects a different angle that shows and demonstrates a different color of God's grace. And this picture is, is constantly changing and taking on new shapes and new colors because more lost stones are being added from the beach into this crown. It doesn't, this crown doesn't stay the same. It's not a relic of history. It's not beautifully put together and then preserved in a museum that you can kind of go and look at and do not touch for we might spoil it. It is something that is alive and active and living because it's the body of Christ. More lost stones are being collected in in different shapes and sizes and colors and being added into this living, growing, moving, changing crown because it's the body of Christ. It's a reflection of his fullness. Someone shared with me just this week uh, a picture, a word, if you like, that was given uh, about this church, not from somebody in this church, but of, uh, of a kaleidoscope. And uh, for so, those of you sort of my age and down, a kaleidoscope is, well, for those of you who are younger than me, a kaleidoscope is what those of you my age and up used to play with before they invented technology. And it was kind of like this, this kid's toy and you looked in it and you turned it and it changed colors and it was beautiful. And you're like, oh! and it entertained us for days. It was amazing. But this, this, this picture, of this kaleidoscope, and a kaleidoscope reflects light, and it kind of, it has all these different shapes and things, and you hold it at different angles, and you see different light, and it's, it's stunningly beautiful, and they're complex, and diverse, and beautiful, and incredible. And this word was kind of like, this is a picture of the church, it looks beautiful. But the picture is that two years ago to now, it's a different picture, because the church has changed. It was beautiful before, but it's changed, and it's beautiful now, and it looks different. It's, things have been shaken. They've been turned upside down. They have been moved, but the, the picture is no less beautiful now. It's just a different one, and it's still being reformed. It's still taking shape, and actually, it's still taking shape because other stones are being added to it, and some stones are having to be moved and repositioned and changed in a different way to facilitate and add, increase more stones being added from that beach into this crown. Don't you long for the daily the Lord added to those, the number who are being saved? Don't you long for that? Well, no, because our crown is beautiful as it is and it shall never be moved again. Can you imagine being in a situation where daily the Lord was adding? How much kind of flex and agility and okay, we did that and now we're doing that because we, whoa, I don't like change. Daily, daily the Lord added to their number, because ultimately that's what it's all about. Lost stones on the beach being made into a jewel in the crown, the living crown of Jesus. It's like, Jesus, thank you that I'm a treasured possession. Thank you that I once was a lost stone on the beach. Now I'm a jewel in this crown. Oh, that I would shine bright as you shine on me and through me. Thank you, God, that you're the head, and I'm part of this body, and we are intimately and wonderfully connected. Our identity in the church is inseparably connected to His, We're going to take communion now because this moment of, of taking communion is a visible declaration that I belong to Jesus and to his body in this kind of outwardly unremarkable act of eating and drinking or whatever it is, this thing is, it's not quite, is it? But you, COVID and all that kind of stuff is better than nothing, all right? But in this outwardly unremarkable act of eating and drinking, God reminds us that we are the beloved people who have been redeemed by his broken body and his blood shed for us. And so, this is a moment, if you're a believer, this is a moment for you. If you're not a believer, this is not a moment for you. You're so welcome here. But this is a moment where we declare we belong to Jesus and we belong to his body, the church. And so, we're going to take this, and it's kind of a fiddly moment, but. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 kind of tells us how to do this. I mean, not literally this. Goodness knows, I don't think he'd work out how to do this. There you go. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, he says, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take this bread as a joy-filled moment of, thank you, Jesus. Your body was broken for me, that I belong. And in the same way, he also took the cup. Oh, man. (laughs) There you go. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink the cup. Thank you, Jesus. And in this powerful moment act, we thank the Lord that he's the head and he's rescued us and saved us and he's added us into this body. We're gonna to pray together. I'll probably carry on preaching in a few minutes, but I want you to turn to the person to your left or your are right. Let's thank the Lord for this broken body, this shed blood that unites us together. And then let's thank God for this body, this local body, and pray for this church. Got about three, four, five minutes. Who knows? Let's pray. Here's the thing we need to grasp. As we consider the reality of being part of the body of Jesus, with Jesus as the head... We need to understand and grasp the absolute completeness of head and body together. And we need to understand that the goal of our salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Although we get that. The goal of our salvation is conformity, body and soul to Jesus. The body becomes like the head. We become perfect. One day we will be exactly as he is, perfected in every way. And we're on this lifelong journey because none of us are perfect yet. By the grace of God, we're, we're further on in the journey than we were this time last year. But we're on this process and this journey of being changed and transformed into being more like him. And that has a few implications for us. The first implication is this. If, the ch- if it's in the church, which is the communion of saints, that is what we are, it's in the church where this conformity takes place if I have any maturity in my faith, if I have any authentic spiritual life, any resolve to follow Jesus, any experience of his fullness, it's because of the ordinary local church. It's because men and women of gifted by God have, have given of themselves and I have received from that. I have received from their gifts of the, the preaching and the declaration of the word. I have experienced from their fullness of their gift of, of ministering in different areas of life. I have experienced and benefited from their prayers and their mutual encouragement and their exhortation. And frankly, sometimes, just to be honest with you, they're telling off. It has done me good. It has built me up. I spent 17 years of being encouraged and, and sometimes told off and sometimes exhorted and sometimes rebuked and sometimes just reminded, I do know what are you doing. And everyone loves the kind of nice moments. And truthfully, they're wonderful, but also truthfully, the ouch moments as well. They've done me good. It's because men and women have prayed for me. It's because men and women who, outside of Christ, I have nothing in common with. Who, If it wasn't for this local church, I would never have met them. They have committed their lives to helping me become more like Jesus. And so for the last 17 years, I have worshipped alongside and worked alongside those for whom Christ has died. And I'm absolutely convinced that I am who I am today because of my experiences in the local church of which I've been a member here for 17 years. I am more of a Christian in the church than I ever could be alone. It's in the church, this communion of saints, where this conformity to Christ takes place. And the second implication is that what God loves, we must love too. What the head loves, the body loves. Where the head goes, the body goes. Ephesians 5, verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we are beloved children, then we must walk in Christ-like love for people. And this ought to mirror God's love in in two ways. Firstly, it looks like loving the unlovely. Loving the least, the last, the lost. Because truthfully, let's be honest, it's really easy to love lovely people, right? Right? But that's not who you, want you were when Jesus set his love on you. Some of us, it was so long ago, we've forgotten, but the Bible is pretty full, of, full on in its description of who you were before Jesus broke in and changed your life. You were an enemy, you were a stranger, you were a rebel, a hater, you were impure, you were disobedient, you were hopeless, you were ignorant outside of Christ. There is nothing attractive about any of this. Our sin makes us not only highly unattractive, but it also places us... Under the wrath of God. But thankfully, what a wonderful verse. Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovely, when we brought nothing to the table, God loved us. When we did nothing to deserve his love, he loved us anyway. And that love changes us and has changed us and is changing us and is making us lovely. You see, God doesn't take lovely things and say, oh, I'll have them. He takes unlovely things and he makes them lovely. He doesn't take made perfect things and go, oh, I'll have them on my team. He takes that which is dead and makes it alive and transforms it into something beautiful, something radiant, something glorious. And he does the whole purpose of everything we looked at over the last few weeks, the humility of Christ stepping down, the sin, his perfect sinlessness of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his enthronement, where he right now is praying for us. If you're a believer here, he is praying for you right now. The whole point of that is Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church it's you and me, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Because of Jesus, now all that list of stuff that we previously were because of Jesus, that has totally changed. We're now clean and holy and blameless and faithful and chosen and we are lacking nothing. We are the beloved of God. And that's the process. God goes on, takes unlovely things and make them lovely. We can't make anyone lovely. God's love does this because it removes our sin and it imputes, it it transfers onto us Christ's perfect righteousness to us. But our love for people displays the love of God and it shines the love of God into dark and unlovely places. We are the chosen ones. We are the beloved, chosen in eternity past. We are the privileged ones. But privilege in the Bible always comes with a purpose. We are blessed to be a blessing. The gospel came to you because it's on its way to someone else. It doesn't stop with us. The love of God for us is poured out, is lavished on us. But it doesn't just stay with us, it flows out from us. And it doesn't just flow inwardly to others who are like us, who are within the people of God already. It flows outward to others, the least, the last, the lost. That's the whole point of loving each other in the first place. That the love of Jesus might be on display. It's literally what Jesus prays for us in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The whole point of the people of God loving one another is so that everybody else gets to see it. And it flows out to them. And that means it's sacrificial love. It costs us something. You know, loving people who are just like me, who look like me, the same life stage as me, that doesn't cost me anything. It's pretty simple and straightforward because they tend to like the things I like. Oh, what a hardship hanging out with people exactly like like everything I like. But loving sacrificially, that's a challenge. God loves us because he loves us but his love came at a great cost. See, the pattern of just hanging out with people and loving people who are just like us, that's not the pattern of the triune God. He doesn't just hang out with people just like himself. He reached out of the fullness of his love to you and to I. He stepped down from his heavenly dwelling. He sacrificed a great deal so that we could know the love of God. By this, 1 John 3:16. by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, loving God's people requires acting like the head does, laying down our lives for the sake of others. And so in the church, we regularly give up of our time, our emotional resources, our money, our respect from the world, our physical comfort, our personal preference. John Stott, preacher and theologian and author, he said, no one who has been to the cross and seeing God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. Have you seen the cross? Have you seen the cost? Do you wanna grow more in Christ-likeness? Give yourself to the church and love the people and shine like stars in a dark and crooked generation. It's like Jesus, shine on me that I might shine like that kaleidoscope. And play my part in the beautiful crown. And shine like stars in a dark and crooked generation. Because as he shines his light on us. The church is on display. Sundays yes. We're on display right now. But there's some whacking great walls in between us and the rest of the world. So where else are we on display? Well whatever it is you're doing tomorrow. This time tomorrow you're on display. As we gather in communities. In the places where we live, work and play. We are on display to a watching world shining bright. And our light shines So we reflect our different colors and different stories and everything else and shine the light of Jesus, the fullness of him, into the world around us. Literally, as Jesus said, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a blanket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this broken body, this bloodshed that has added us now into your kingdom. All who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they shall be saved. And what a salvation it is, full, complete. We are the forgiven, we are the freed, we are the loved, we are Thank you, Lord. What a privilege, but it's a privilege for a purpose. Lord, would you captivate our hearts afresh. Those whose batteries are run low, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you just so fill us afresh? Those who have become a bit disillusioned perhaps with church or a bit, oh, oh, it's hard, isn't it? Oh Lord, that we would be captivated fresh by the things you love. You love your bride, you love the church. And Jesus, would you help us to shine like stars in this dark and crooked generation. Shine on us that we might shine brightly into the world that many might see and have their lives transformed, that many jewels on the beach, stones on the beach would be added to be jewels in the crown, that daily you would add to the number of those who are being saved here. I saw hearts cry for your glory, our good and the good of a watching world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the easiest way to outwork this stuff is to get involved. Be in community, be with the people of God. Hang out with different people in that kaleidoscope thing. Remind your soul each day, I am the stone from the beach that's been added into the crown. I'm beloved, I'm treasured, I am cherished. I have a part to play. I just wanna encourage you to stick around. As Yemi said in the the One Church News bit, don't head off, don't rush off. Tea and coffee are gonna be served that way. Chat to someone, go and speak to somebody that you've not spoken to before. It's okay, you can just pretend, if you ask them if they're new, you just pretend you are as well. That's not a problem, all right? Just go and, and, and talk to somebody different. And I appreciate that for lots of us in the room, like, oh, I can't think of anything worse. Do you know what? We are jewels in a crown. That no, We all have a part to play. We're loved, we're cherished. We have a part in this family. Stick around and we'll see you next Sunday and throughout the week in community. God bless.